the kind of strong movements we've seen towards reopening America seem to be at some level in conversation with this idea that those who are impacted by COVID-19 are people who are not valuable, populations who are a burden to the public, and therefore their health problems and health disparities should not take away economic opportunity from those who are productive. This conversation is straight from late 1800s, early 1900s eugenic ideology. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs, a podcast from the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley. My name is Mark Abizade, the host of the show, and in this episode we have a three-guest panel of Berkeley faculty who provide various perspectives on the different forms of racism we've been witnessing since the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll hear about the experiences of Asian Americans who are facing a surge in hate crimes. We'll hear about the disparate impacts on black and brown communities in terms of the rates of death. And we'll hear about how politicians are using the crisis to engage in racial fear-mongering. But the panelists don't focus so much on the incidents themselves as on the structures that have created the conditions for these forms of racism to emerge with such force. The panelists examine these issues by placing them in historical, social, and political contexts so we can think about how to respond to the crisis in ways that don't reinforce the structures that set the stage for what we're currently experiencing. The first guest is Catherine Choi, who is a professor of Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies and Comparative Ethnic Studies. The second guest is Ian Hanny Lopez, who is a professor of law and the director of the Racial Politics Project. He's also the author of Dog Whistle Politics and the more recent book, Merge Left. And the third guest is Osagi Obasogi, who is a professor of bioethics and chair of our institute's Health Disparities Research Cluster. Let's cut straight to the interview, which will start right now. Professor Choi, you've noted that this is not new or unique and blaming Chinese people or Asians more generally for diseases. So can you start us off by giving us a little bit of background on that history? Tragically, there's a much longer history of associating Asian and by extension Asian American bodies with disease as disease carriers. And this goes back um, over 150 years that in the 1860s through the 1880s, when there were smallpox outbreaks here in the United States, they were uh, blamed on um, the Chinese uh, in the US. We also see the association in the early 1900s of uh, the bubonic plague with uh, Japanese arrivals to the United States. Um, when the United States colonized the Philippines in the early 1900s, some of their uh, colonial health officials referred to Filipino bodies as incubators of leprosy. And this is something that has continued in more recent times. In the early 21st century, we also saw how SARS led to anti-Asian hostility and harassment because of the association um, with SARS and um, Asian uh, Chinese bodies as disease carriers, and we're seeing it in the present day. So the next question I, I wanted to ask is something that's already been talked about a bit in the news from various perspectives, is the terming of the coronavirus by Trump and the Republicans as the China virus or the Wuhan virus. And Professor Ian Henny Lopez, I know you're a specialist in political messaging, maybe you can start by uh, sharing from your perspective what you hear when you hear that term China virus. Leaders are making decisions about how they will direct blame. In something like a pandemic, it's, it's a health crisis. And 
trying to understand its origins, it, it, its etiology from a public health perspective, that's important. We'll get there. But in the short run, we need to deal with it as a public health crisis. And right now we're living in a context in which the leadership of the United States has failed spectacularly to protect us. And in that context, what we're seeing is that the American political leadership, especially from the Republican Party and from the administration of Donald Trump, is seeking to politicize uh, this, this pandemic, seeking to make it part of partisan politics. And they've tried various strategies, um, but key among them, and the one they seem to be settling on right now as the strategy, the messaging strategy they will pursue through uh, November is to blame the Chinese, calling it a Chinese virus, but also uh, saying, well, this isn't racism. This isn't even about nationality. This is about the Chinese Communist Party. Um, we can't be racist. This is just geographically true. It's just a fact that the Communist Party bobbled the, um, uh, their response when the pandemic began there. Um, so they're saying all of that. And in addition, what they're trying to do is they're trying to connect the Democratic Party and the, and the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, um, to, this, to this blame the Chinese strategy by identifying Biden as being friendly toward and defensive of the Chinese. And, and indeed, America First, one of the largest pro-Trump super PACs, has recently launched ads uh, with the hashtag Beijing Biden. This is very much a political strategy. At root, it's a political strategy that connects up to a 50-year effort to racialize um, uh, American politics, to stoke racial conflict and division, but to do so in coded terms that allow plausible deniability. In this case, this is, put bluntly, this is dog whistle politics. This is an effort to trigger racist thinking, racist fears and stereotypes, of the sort that Professor Choi has, has, has identified as being deeply rooted in American culture, but to vivify them, to, to stoke them, to energize them in the present purposefully as a political strategy. So Professor Choi, can I get your thoughts from your perspective about this issue of racializing uh, viruses? Because it's, it's not just a, an abstract issue, it's something that has real life impact and consequences on everyday people. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, about what those kinds of terms mean for how Asian Americans are viewed and treated? The labeling of COVID-19 as a Chinese virus has had extremely harmful consequences for not solely Chinese and Asians, but also for Chinese and other Asian Americans. And that has to do with a history of racial lumping where uh, the general public cannot tell apart uh, Chinese first-generation migrant from a fourth-generation Chinese-American. And one of the disturbing things that I have um, read about recently in the news is that a new reporting center called um, Stop AAPI Hate has recorded that between mid-March and mid April of this year, uh, in just a little over a month, there have been almost 1,500 um, coronavirus-related um, racist incidents targeting uh, Asian Americans. And so this has real consequences, as you point out, on the lived experiences of 
Asian Americans, but also um, Asians throughout the world. Uh, Osagi, do you want to add anything on this topic, um, not just from a public health perspective, but also someone who studies history? I'll just add uh, to this to the important comments made by my colleagues that you know we often hear this argument that um, that the naming convention uh, of of linking a disease to its origins is something that's been around for a long time and is without any type of racial implication. And I think we just need to complicate that and really lay bare that that's not always true. So, for example, the quote-unquote Spanish flu of 1918, you know, public health historians have come to the conclusion that it actually started in Kansas. Um, and we don't call that the Kansas flu. I've never heard that, right? So this is to say that when we associate locations and peoples with diseases, there is a deep political motivation behind it as both Ian and Catherine have talked about, and we have to really push back when we hear people trying to normalize the association between Chinese Americans or Chinese people and uh, COVID-19. So I want to turn to the disparate impacts of COVID-19 uh, from a public health perspective, and I'll just mention, uh, Osagi, that you participated in a really extraordinary panel last week with a number of other public health experts uh, who are looking at the impacts of the virus on black and brown communities specifically. And there were a couple of narratives that the panelists were trying to dispel. Uh, and I'll just list them really briefly. There was this argument, this narrative put forth that there's a biological basis for why black people are dying at rates much higher than white people. Uh, there's another one that that people of color have higher rates of pre-existing conditions. And then finally, that communities of color are not uh, following shelter-in-place orders, so really it's their own fault if they get sick. But as you pointed out, public health as a field also has a, a role in propping up some of these narratives. So can you expand a little bit on that from your perspective? Sure. So I think, you know, public health as a field has tried to distinguish its work from what happens in medicine by paying attention to the social determinants of health. So clinical medicine is often focused on the kind of biological or physiological process that processes that might lead an individual to become sick. And public health practitioners tried to provide a more holistic understanding of how illness and disease spreads by looking at social and environmental factors and looking at health as a population um, issue or the product of, of population and group circumstance. Um, and while public health has tried to do that, you know, at, there have been some unfortunate moments where it has kind of devolved back to an individualist framework that is attributing public health phenomenon to individual behaviors. So an example of this was the U.S. Surgeon General who spoke a couple weeks ago who tried to speak to communities of color by suggesting that we can combat what is a public health problem by individual actions, such as people of color should stop smoking and not drink and not use drugs. And that's an unfortunate and deeply problematic framing to suggest that COVID-19 can be, can be uh, um, you know, dispelled or fought off by a series of individual behaviors. And it doesn't take seriously the, the notion that uh, the racial disparities that we see with COVID-19 are tied uh, intimately to a long history of, of racism uh, in medicine and in public health in terms of having access to various resources um, that other communities uh, have access to. And it's also deeply connected by, um, by deeper histories and legacies of, of slavery, eugenics, scientific racism, et cetera, um, in, in addition to the contemporary issues that communities of color continue to, to fight. So this is to say that in order to have a more accurate and, um, shall we say, productive and successful um, battle against not only COVID-19, but also the racial disparities we see in terms of who's impacted, we really have to take these histories seriously and understand that it's going to, re it's going to require a a structural approach in terms of trying to make sure that these communities 
and their health are taken seriously. I'd love to comment on that also. So I think what's happening here is we're seeing a couple of different political narratives developing around the disproportionate deaths in communities of color. And they're contradictory, although ultimately they say they serve the same end, which is to uh, create a partisan divide over this public health emergency. So one narrative says that uh, it's overwhelmingly people of color who are dying, they're concentrated in the cities, and all of these shelter-in-place requirements that have the effect of shutting down the economy are being instigated by government in order to protect people of color. And that plays into a 50-year-old reactionary narrative that says distrust liberals, distrust government, distrust major social institutions like unions. They care more about protecting people of color than they do about hardworking Americans, and hardworking Americans serves as a proxy for whites. So that story has reemerged. And then in addition, there's also this seemingly contradictory story that says whites are the ones who are sheltering in place, and if black and brown communities are experiencing disproportionate deaths, it's because they're not taking appropriate steps, which is another way of saying disproportionate effects on communities of color that do reflect the way Professor Obasogi said, that do reflect a, a long legacy, an, an entrenched legacy of discrimination, are instead a reflection of dysfunctional behaviors within communities of color themselves. But when you combine those narratives, what you see is a polarized, a politically polarizing story that says, we are a country that's fundamentally divided by race. People of color are threatening. People of color are undeserving. Government takes their side. We need to trust instead the political leaders who resist government, who stand outside of government, who represent the marketplace. That is to say, the business elites, people like Donald Trump. Osagi, I want to go back to something that you also talked a little bit about during the panel last week. And it's just relevant to note that you're also a bioethicist and a researcher of history. So you have a unique perspective on this issue of eugenics. And you noted a correlation between um, the realization that there were disparate impacts of the coronavirus on people of color and calls to reopen the economy. Um, and you, you talked about this as, as kind of like a modern form of eugenics. So can you talk a little bit about that, expand on that? You know, this is, um, for me, an interesting um, realization that there was a correlation, and I want to emphasize correlation and not causation, but a correlation between two narratives, one um, which was around the emerging data that came out a couple of weeks ago in terms of who was being impacted by COVID-19. And that data showed that it was disproportionate of elderly individuals and people of color. And that conversation emerged again around the same time as we started to see these more active efforts to articulate a, a, a movement around reopening America. And the that correlation to me is interesting because it suggests that these narratives are in, are in conversation with one another. That is that the the kind of strong movements we've seen towards reopening America seem to be at some level in conversation with this idea that those who are impacted by COVID-19 are people who are not valuable, populations that do not contribute to the economy, populations who are a burden to the public, and therefore their health problems and health disparities should not uh, take away economic opportunity from those who are productive. 
this conversation is straight from late 1800s, early 1900s eugenic ideology. That is that those individuals, uh, so I'll take a step backwards and, and just kind of frame it for us. So eugenics was this ideology that emerged in the late 1800s, early 1900s that suggested that we should use medicine, science, and technology to, in a sense, uh, make sure that we weed out and that is prevent the birth of those populations that are a burden to society and promote the, the, the birth and, and, um, and health of those people who are seen as good and superior. And a central part of that conversation was deeply class-based and race-based. That is that certain populations are inherently a burden and therefore they should not uh, be around with us. So I think it's important to kind of track the legacy of this eugenic ideology. Many people suggest that eugenics as an idea uh, disappeared after World War II, after we realized the horrific implications of eugenics. But the legacy of eugenics is with us to this very day and influences many aspects of scientific research and medicine, and moreover, public policy. So we really have to take seriously uh, how that ideology shapes claims to reopen America when it becomes increasingly apparent that the folks who are burdened by this uh, pandemic are folks who are considered uh, not valuable uh, in, in many people's eyes. And that um, we really have to also just make sure that uh, these, these conversations about reopening America don't happen on terms that exclude um, the voices of those who are most vulnerable. Because again, as a society, our, our commitment and our responsibility is to everyone, not simply those who um, are eager to get the economy back up and going. Professor uh, Choi, I wanted to ask you about this article that I came across over the weekend and I sent it to you because I thought it was really relevant to the larger theme of our podcast, which is called Who Belongs? And the article was by the actor John Cho. Um, it was an op-ed and John Cho, he played in Harold and Kumar and a few other movies. And he talks about um, about how it's, it's in crises like these where uh, Asian Americans uh, are reminded that they don't really belong, um, that it it um, dissolves this narrative that Asian Americans are a model minority, um, that they've uh, proven that they can be accepted and integrated into the larger society. But then when something like this happens, it's a reminder that their belonging is really temporary and uh, conditional. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that perspective. John Cho is um, a terrific actor and also a UC Berkeley alumnus who took some ethnic studies courses, so go Bears. Uh, I read his op-ed and I appreciated it very much. Um, one of the things that we have observed um, from this pandemic is that for Asian Americans, you're the model minority until you're not. And it does show that there is an unstable uh, belonging um, for Asian Americans um, in the United States and that stereotypes of Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners who um, are not American or the opposite of, of American are sadly still with us. Um, the model minority is uh, an controlling image that has been with us um, for some time. It became popular in the late 1960s and um, at that point was referring to Asian immigrant entrepreneurs saying that they 
could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and that they were doing very well here in the United States. And, um, and later it would morph into um, Asian Americans as whiz kids um, who were super smart um, in math and other STEM fields. And um, I see the rise of the image of the model minority alongside the persistent stereotype of Asians and Asian Americans as disease carriers. Um, both of them actually work together. Um, they are stereotypes of Asian Americans as either subhuman or superhuman but never quite human and certainly not American. So John Cho brought up something that is happening today but that we've also seen in the past that is dangerous and that we need to speak out against. I also wanna point out that Asian American studies scholars have called the model minority a myth um, for two main reasons. Um, one is that um, Asian Americans are an incredibly diverse, heterogeneous population. Um, it is a community that also deals with low educational attainment and poverty um, and other struggles contrary to the glowy um, image of the model minority as a success story. It's also a myth because one of the most dangerous things about the Asian Americans as a model minority is that it has historically pitted Asian Americans um, against other racialized groups and has said that Asian Americans are a model minority in contrast to um, African Americans and, and Latinx. And um, this works not to help Asian Americans. This is actually quite um, destructive. It's divisive. And um, it, it sets all of us uh, back. So that op-ed um, brings up a number of, of complex issues that we all need to be grappling with um, in this very moment. I just want to turn back to that question of political messaging. And we've already talked about what Trump and the Republicans are doing. Um, but now we have this new political ad from Joe Biden. He failed to act. So now Trump and his allies are launching negative attacks against Joe Biden to hide the truth. Here are the facts. Joe Biden warned the nation in January that Trump had left us unprepared for a pandemic. Then, Biden told Trump he should insist on having American health experts on the ground in China. I would be on the phone with China and making it clear, we are going to need to be in your country. You have to be open. You have to be clear. We have to know what's going on. But Trump rolled over for the Chinese. He took their word for it. The president tweeted, China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. China, I spoke with President Xi and they're working very, very very hard, and I think it's going to all work out fine. Trump praised the Chinese 15 times in January and February as the coronavirus spread across the world. It's a tough situation. I think they're doing a very good job. Are you concerned about the potential impact on the global economy? I think that China will do a very good job. Trump never got a CDC team on the ground in China, and the travel ban he brags about 
Trump let in 40,000 travelers from China into America after he signed it. Not exactly airtight. Look around. 22 million Americans are out of work, and we have more officially reported cases and deaths than any other country. Donald Trump left this country unprepared and unprotected for the worst public health and economic crisis in our lifetime. And now we're paying the price. So I wanted to get your thoughts and reactions on that, and maybe we can start with uh, Professor Hanny Lopez. So to understand what the Republicans are doing, the first point is they have settled on a strategy of linking the pandemic to China and then linking China to the Democrats. And when I say the Republicans, I don't mean just Donald Trump. This is actually a strategy that is now being promoted, for instance, to every Republican candidate for the Senate, uh, either for election or for re-election. So this is really going to be a coordinated message that we're going to hear across many, many different campaigns uh, throughout the remainder of this campaign season. But how is it that they are linking China to the pandemic? I've already said they're doing so through dog whistles, that is by referring to it as the Chinese virus or uh, by consistently talking about it as the Wuhan virus. But that's only the first step in a uh, in a more complex choreography. In addition to that, the right is counting on progressives to criticize them for racism or xenophobia. And it's part of their strategy to provoke those sorts of charges because they then immediately turn around and say, they're not racist at all. Uh, that's the denial part. They're not racist at all. They just said something that was geographically accurate or was accurate in pinning the blame on a national government that failed to respond adequately and sufficiently rapidly. Uh, not racism at all. And then in the next move, they counterpunch and say, see, there you go again. Political correctness, Democrats and liberal government doing more to protect minorities than to actually save America from this pandemic. In other words, Republicans have a strategy in which they push race into the conversation, deny that that's what they're doing, and then wait to be criticized for racism or xenophobia, and then counterpunch and say, no, the real enemy in America uh, is liberals and their political correctness. So the question then becomes, how can Democrats respond? One thing Democrats can do is simply to ignore this phenomenon. Obviously, that's insufficient. Another thing progressives can do is to go ahead and call the right racist and xenophobic and, and bigots. That simply plays directly into their hands. A third solution that occurs to many Democrats is unpalatable, unlikely to be effective, but seemingly the only thing they can do, and it's precisely what Joe Biden is doing right now, and that is imitate the Republican strategy accept the basic framework of the Republican narrative that China is the problem, but contest who's the real friend of China, who was weak on China. So what Biden's ad does is it confirms the idea that China's really to blame, and then it turns around and says, hey, and don't worry, Democrats will be tougher on China than, than the Republicans will. This is going to be a disaster for the Democrats. It's going to be a disaster for China. It's going to be a disaster for the Chinese. It's going to be a disaster in terms of increasing racial division. But it's also going to be an electoral disaster in terms of the Democrats. Because in effect, the Democrats are saying, 
we accept the idea that the 2020 election will be a contest between two parties as to which is better at racial fear-mongering. And if that's the form of the contest, there's no chance that Joe Biden and the Democrats are going to be better at racist fear-mongering than Donald Trump, the Republican establishment, and the right-wing echo chamber established through Fox News, Rush Limbaugh, Breitbart, and so on. Professor Choi, did you want to add anything as far as the uh, what your fears were about what the consequences of that type of strategy would be for Asian Americans who are already facing a very hostile environment? That ad was problematic. Um, it continues to reify binaries between what is American and what is Chinese. It suggests that what is Chinese is diseased, is secretive, is untrustworthy. And these kinds of um, racial national binaries uh, will potentially um, contribute. They will potentially exacerbate um, anti-Asian violence in the United States. So I'm very critical. Um, of this ad, and I would like to see um, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party um, take on new, different frameworks um, for discussing the pandemic and U.S.-China relations. So in this last part, um, I want to look towards the future and um, and see what uh, what could come out of this pandemic. And so there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. And uh, I know that there is a danger that we've already seen it. Actually, there's a couple of examples and how uh, the pandemic is being used as an excuse to uh, by Trump and the administration to push policies that actually um, uh, just harden racist structures, for example, ending asylum policies at the border. Uh, another example was how Trump tried to halt immigration, though I just read this morning that a judge uh, blocked that uh, order, that suggestion. So then what are the alternatives? What are the, the positive things that we can see? And, and in terms of messaging, what is the alternative message that the opposition could put forward um, that uses this pandemic as an opportunity to bring people together as opposed to furthering othering? One of the risks that we take in um, divisive language is um, increasing racial hostility, harassment, and violence. And as an alternative, what I would love to see our politicians here in the United States and um, American institutions and organizations do is to acknowledge that Asian Americans are Americans, that they are human beings, and that they, we all have a stake in um, the rise of anti-Asian violence here in the United States. I'd also like to see an alternative framework that elevates a sense of communal care. Um, public health that is for the public good and that truly incorporates um, the most vulnerable um, groups in our American um, society, as well as some of the more privileged ones. 
Ian, did you want to add? I think in order to understand the way forward, we have to be clear about precisely the danger we, we risk. And it's something that Naomi Klein has written about under uh, her book, The Shock Doctrine. She calls it disaster capitalism. And the idea there is that in the midst of crises, the wealthy few capitalist elites seize the moment to enact reforms that further concentrate wealth and power in their hands at a moment when people are fearful and distracted, focused merely on getting through the crisis and not paying attention to these, these deeper structural political and economic changes. Well, I think that's right. We are seeing disaster capitalism play out in many different ways right now. Um, the relief that's being passed, trillions of dollars of money, major tax cuts, a lot of it rigged to go to the very rich. But it's not just disaster capitalism hidden behind a crisis. It's disaster capitalism hidden behind racist fear-mongering. It's precisely the effort by the right to direct people's attention to China, to the Chinese, to immigrants generally, that prevents people from focusing on the way in which, in fact, the rich are seeking to take advantage of even a global health crisis to arrogate more and more power and wealth for themselves. And once we see that clearly, that opens up a different possibility, not simply in terms of political messaging, but in terms of our ability as a society to recognize that our fates are truly linked. When we accept racist stereotypes about Asians and Asian Americans, we end up voting in a way that gives power to billionaires who are running a con on all of us. And when we do that, we end up with a society rigged for the few in which the rest of us live in economic misery and in racial conflict. It's so important to say, yes, this is racism, yes, this is bigotry, but not because of personal prejudice on the part of Donald Trump or anybody else, it's rather racism as a political strategy by the billionaire class to get us fighting each other so we won't notice the way in which they're rigging the rules and wrecking democracy for all of us. And that's not just some message that has been made up in the halls of Berkeley. That's a message that we ran a two-year project to study, and we showed in that project, the race class narrative project, that that is the single most potent political message today, stronger than any other progressive message available and stronger even than the right's message of racial fear. The pandemic is a moment when we need government on the side of all of us. And the only way to do that is to create a multiracial movement in which every racial group understands our fates are linked. And the only way to do that is to show people that racism against brown, black, yellow, and red people is being run in a, as a billionaire's con, and that when we reject that, we can make sure that government actually works for all of us. Yeah, so one thing I'll add is, I think um, a related concern um, to the discussion that we're having is having a broader historical understanding of how notions of improving or protecting public health has been a cover for initiating disastrous policies in the past and the need to be attuned to how that might occur here. So in particular, in the wake of COVID-19, we've seen several examples where local politicians are thinking about how to reopen society in a way that can protect us from the further spread of the virus. 
And we've seen scenarios that are in many ways downright dystopian. The idea of before you're allowed to walk into a restaurant or any public space, you have your, your temperature taken. Um, you have to wear certain protective measures. Um, and we're seeing a series of conversations where in the name of public health, we're gonna require people to have certain prerequisites to ensure that they are protecting themselves and other people. I think one thing we wanna pay attention to is how these type of measures, whether it's uh, taking people's temperatures, whether it is um, stopping people who aren't working, wearing protective uh, masks, whether it is other efforts to, in a sense, uh, surveil people's kind of biological capacities and predispositions, how this, on the one hand, may in some circumstances be a reasonable way to stop the spread of disease, but can also be used as a way to initiate forms of surveillance that can be downright harmful and disastrous. And the communities that are most likely to be harmed by that are gonna be vulnerable populations. So communities of color and other uh, uh, vulnerable groups. And so I think it's important for us to realize how there is a deep history of how public health measures have been used uh, to do this and making sure that as we think about what measures we actually need to protect us going forward, that there's a careful balance between uh, what's actually uh, productive in, in protecting society and what may, in a sense, go overboard and have external externalities that could be quite harmful to those folks who are in most need. I've heard those concerns being raised, but they're mostly have been around uh, the role that tech's playing, Google and Apple and uh, tracking your phones and your movements and who you're encountering. But I didn't realize that it, was, it also went to, I mean, uh, I didn't realize that, that wearing masks or getting your temperature checked was also a controversial policy. Um, could you elaborate just briefly on that? Because I think that's something that most people would just think is common sense. So at some level, it may be practical given the situation, but I think we have to have a serious conversation anytime we put prerequisites on who can participate in civil society, um, whether it is someone who has the right temperature or wearing the right protective gear, again, might be reasonable uh, given what's, what's happening at a particular moment. But at the same time, these, uh, these requirements for basic participation in terms of being able to work, being able to, to, to enjoy society with your family, we just have to ha have a really careful conversation to make sure that the measures that we enact are doing what they're supposed to do and are not leveraged to, in a sense, make other people's lives harder than it may already be. I just want to amplify what, what uh, Professor Obasogi is saying. One of the most striking images that I've seen recently is the Philadelphia police dragging a black man off of a bus uh, using, you know, six or seven white police officers using a tremendous amount of force dragging him off a bus ostensibly because he's not wearing a mask. Contrast that with an image in which one police officer or one community service officer approaches someone not wearing a mask and hands them a mask. If the issue is a mask, yes, there's ways in which we can do that that facilitates participation and inclusion. The danger is that we'll use a sense of crisis and panic to instead harden prejudices, harden lines of exclusion, and shift the country towards militarism and authoritarianism. It's not the mass per se. It's how we go about expressing our commitment to the health of each and every one of us. Do we all matter in the way that we design public health responses so that we do the best we can in protecting each, other, each other's health? Or do we design public health policies in the way that tracks existing hierarchies as to who matters in society 
and who doesn't? And I think just to just to add to that excellent point is that notions of public health are tied tightly to the state's police power. That is, states have wide authority to enforce and protect the public health um, in ways that can be quite shocking to the conscience. And so as Professor Haney Lopez noted, we already have examples where we see this occur. And as this moves forward, we may see even more egregious examples of force being used in the name of public health. Um, and this is why I think it's critically important for us to have these conversations early in terms of what's needed, how are we gonna enforce it, and to make sure that populations that are already vulnerable um, aren't further marginalized in the name of protecting the public's health. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. Thank you to our guests, Catherine Choi, who is a professor of Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies and Comparative Ethnic Studies, Ian Hany lopez who is a professor of law and director of the Racial Politics Project, and Osagi Obosogi, who is a professor of bioethics and chair of our Institute's Health Disparities Research Cluster. For a transcript of this interview and links to relevant resources, including those cited in this interview, visit our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Thank you for listening. Thank you.